0: to John 17 with me this morning, and we're going to be opening up the uh, first verse, first few verses here of this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 17, in fact, I've entitled the message, The High Priestly Prayer. We're going to look at verses one through five, focusing primarily on verse one together this morning. John chapter 17, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be in your word today. We thank you that every single verse is inspired and infallible, that it's relevant to our lives, that it's sufficient to solve our problems, that it encourages us to find our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that today as we embark on a study of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, that we would learn much so that we could pray in a better way, so that we could be encouraged in a deeper way, and so that we could be changed forever because of the truths that we learn In this time in your word, bless it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ here in John 17 is the best prayer in the Bible. Now, that's just my opinion, but I'll try to prove it to you in the weeks to come. I think it's the most amazing prayer in the entire Bible because it's the prayer of Jesus. And Martin Luther said about it, This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. Jesus opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours it all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, and so wide. No one can fathom it. Philip Melanchthon, a friend and disciple of Luther, when giving his last lecture before his death, said, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more faithful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son to God himself. The Scottish reformer, John Knox, had John 17 read to him every day during the illness which took his life. He said, quote, the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without a doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. Puritan Matthew Henry said, quote, the most remarkable prayer followed the most consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. J.C. Ryle said about John 17, quote, the chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the whole Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it. Well, obviously, if all these faithful, godly men are going to have such high praise on this chapter, John 17, we want to take a careful look at it beginning this morning. Now, the truth is this. This is not Jesus's first prayer in the Bible, not by a long shot. Vocal prayer from Jesus to God, was something that Jesus did regularly in the Gospels. In the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Did you know that while he was being baptized, Jesus was engaged in prayer Luke chapter 3, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. On the eve of selecting the 12 apostles, Luke 6, 12 gives another prayer of Jesus where it says he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and pulled back the veil of his flesh so we could see his glory, it says in Luke 9, 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Jesus prayed an honest prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, and going a little while farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed a prayer on the cross. In Luke 23, verse 24, we read, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it was while he was praying that Jesus breathed his last Luke 23, 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, all in, these, in all of these prayers, we either don't know what Jesus prayed Some of the earlier ones, it says he went out to the mountain and he prayed all night. Or while he was being baptized, he was engaged in prayer. In some of those references, we don't know what Jesus prayed. In all the other references that I just read to you, we just hear one line, maybe two sentences of what Jesus prayed. But we're going to examine in this prayer 26 verses Of the prayer of Jesus Christ. If we didn't really know the content of his prayers and some of these other shorter references, certainly in these 26 verses, we're going to hear how he was overflowing with passionate, heartfelt, doctrinally sound, and earnest content that we'll find all here in this prayer. We're going to examine this high priestly prayer in three parts. Part one, verses one through five, is where Jesus prays for himself. In part two, which is verses six through 19, Jesus prays for his apostles. In part three, which is verses 20 to 26, we're going to see how Jesus prays for the church. So here we are embarking on this encounter with the high priestly prayer. Today, we'll just look at part of part one. In fact, we're just going to get to one verse this morning, John 17, 1, as we begin to see how it is that Jesus prayed for himself. Let's look at this first heading, if you will. Number one, the priority of Jesus's prayer. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says that he was addressing God as Father. We see that there in verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father... The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so we see in the priority of Jesus' prayer, at the very beginning, as he starts to pray, he's addressing God as Father. Your next blank there, number one, three truths, or a couple of truths, rather, I want to talk to you about addressing God as Father. Number one, using the word Father. Obviously, Jesus is using the word Father. Now just to kind of put you in the context if you're kind of visiting this morning or you kind of forgot lost track of where we were it's uh, we've been looking at how Jesus had just finished preaching an incredible message, what we call the Upper Room Discourse. It started in John 13, continues in 14, 15. We finished it up last week in 16. And this Upper Room Discourse was really a long sermon. It was a message of serving. It was a message of loving. It was a message of fruit bearing. It was a message of finding your joy in obeying Jesus. It was a message informing the disciples of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was also a message anointing or excuse me, announcing Jesus's departure and a message warning the disciples of oncoming persecution. And Jesus ended this powerful sermon in chapter 16, verse 33. Look at it with me. This is where we were last week. We ended with this final address that he gave to his disciples there. He said, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation." But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so after Jesus wraps up that last part, he's saying, hey, there's a lot of good stuff happening, there's a lot of challenging things happen. no matter what's happening, you guys need to have peace in me, because I'm telling you, in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble, but you guys can take heart, I've already overcome the world. And so as he wraps up his sermon, this incredible sermon, Jesus then offers up an incredible prayer. An incredible sermon ought to be followed with an incredible prayer. It has been well said that the best and the fullest sermon ever preached was followed by the best of prayers. Like any preacher, if you preach a powerful sermon, you might want to cap it off at the end by praying a powerful prayer. John Calvin said it this way, quote, Christ holds out an example to teachers, not only to employ themselves, In sowing the word, but by mingling prayers with it to implore the assistance of God that his blessings may render their labor fruitful. You know what he's saying? He's saying, don't just preach the word, pray the word. Don't just preach the Bible. Pray through Bible together with those that you preach to so that maybe they can put into practice what it is that they've been hearing. In other words, Jesus didn't just preach great sermons. He prayed great prayers. And I'm going to argue with you that John 17 is the greatest prayer ever prayed. So when Jesus has spoken these words, the words of the upper room discourse, he lifted his eyes to heaven. What position? What position? Should we be in when we pray? Some people say when you pray, you ought to be on your knees. Some people say when you pray, you ought to lift your eyes to heaven. Some people would even say you ought to lift up holy hands in prayer. In this passage, Jesus prays with his eyes lifted up to heaven. And you've done this a couple of times when Jesus fed the 5,000, Matthew 14, 19, it says Jesus looked up into heaven and said a blessing. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John eleven forty one, 41, it tells us that Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And so we see on a few occasions that Jesus would lift his eyes to heaven as he would pray. The Apostle Paul prayed on his knees. Ephesians 3.14 says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And so sometimes we get into a good, healthy conversation, like, well, what position should you be in when you pray? And the answer would be, you could be in whatever position you want. Because God cares a whole lot more about the posture of your heart than he cares about the posture of your body. There is no particular place you got to look or place that you got to kneel. At the same time, I say, why not get in some position? Because sometimes the way you position your body can help you position your heart. I don't know about you, but I think whenever I'm on my knees in prayer, somehow I'm just a little bit more locked in. I'm a little bit more focused, and I don't get on my knees, shamefully, every day. I'm ashamed to admit I don't pray on my knees every day, but at the same time, you don't have to be on your knees. The point is, it's about your heart. And yet, I love the thought of how Jesus here is uh, is looking up into heaven as if he's just having this dialogue, because he is, with his Father. So, he uses this word, Father. Notice again, verse 1, he lifted his eyes into heaven, and he says, Father. We're talking about how That word father is used in prayer. In fact, he uses it five other times in this one chapter, chapter 17 alone. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, and now father. Look down at verse 11 where he says, holy father. Look at verse 21 where he says, just as you, father, are in me and I in you. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, and again in verse 25 where he prays, O righteous Father. So that's a total of six times in this singular prayer of John 17 that Jesus addresses God as Father. And so we could ask the question, why does Jesus address God in this way? I believe that it's it's because they have this beautiful, intimate, father-son relationship. And this is just a natural way that the son would pray to the father. This shows their intimacy. It shows Jesus's respect. It shows the closeness of their relationship. God was his father. Now, God was the son's father in a couple of different ways. He was the father of the son by virtue of Christ's human nature which was miraculously produced, listen to me, Jesus himself was not created as he was God, very God from eternity past, but his human body was created by God. And so, in that sense, he's looking up to God as Father, one of the many senses. There's another sense in which Jesus calls God Father. He calls him Father as a representative of the Christian people. Talks a lot about that in Romans chapter 5, how Jesus was the head or the representative for every Christian who has ever been redeemed. This means that Jesus called God Father, then every believer who is in Christ can also call God Father in the same way. He's also using that word Father, I believe, to refer to what is that pre-existing relationship which existed between the Father and the Son from all eternity. This points to what theologians call the eternal Sonship of Jesus, that Jesus didn't just become God's son at the incarnation, but has always related to God as his son from eternity past. And so when he says the word father, there's just a lot of robust theology and reason to pause, trying to kind of contemplate and grasp all that's going on in this word father. I mean, aren't you thankful today that because Jesus prayed father, that we also can pray father? We have the opportunity to relate to God in the same way as his son, as his daughter. You have a father who made you. You have a father who loves you. You have a father who wants to bless you in your life. You may be lost this morning. I want to invite you to come to the father. You may be confused this morning. I want to invite you to come to the father. You may be out of sorts this morning, but there is a heavenly father who created you to have a relationship with Him, and that could happen even on this very morning. Maybe on this morning, you don't know God as Father. But as we're listening to how Jesus prayed to Him, maybe it is that you could come to Him as your Father on this very day. And not only does Jesus pray addressing God as Father, but He also encourages His disciples to pray the same way. Look at your next blank there. Number two, comparing the disciples' prayer with the Lord's Prayer. Now, I've jotted down another reference there, so you might want to go ahead and start turning to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And this is what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus had taught the disciples to pray using the word Father, just like he's giving us this personal example of John 17. And he taught that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when he says, Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. So that's the beginning of what we typically call the Lord's Prayer. Now this morning, I'm going to challenge us to switch it and call that prayer the Disciples' Prayer. And call this prayer the Lord's Prayer. So I'm kind of trying to undo your whole life of referencing here these prayers. So forgive me if it's a little confusing, but let me explain why. In the prayer of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, while it is often referred to as the disciples' prayer, I think more accurately, it's really the the disciples' prayer, where Jesus is particularly teaching the disciples how it is that they ought to be praying to the Father. Not only that, but the disciples' prayer... If we could call it that here in Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. This prayer is a prayer that only the disciples would pray, that Jesus wouldn't actually pray this same prayer. You say, Well, Adam, why would God teach the disciples to pray a prayer in John chapter 6, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, that he would never pray? Well, here's the answer. If you look at that prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, 10 says, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and what? Forgive us our debts. Well, did Jesus have any debts? Did he have any sin? He's the sinless son of God. And so Jesus would have never recited the disciples' prayer on a regular basis basis because he himself had no debts to offer, uh, to ask for forgiveness for. He was led into temptation but he was also the one who would overcome every temptation. So I'm just simply saying the disciples could pray this prayer because it included a daily confession of sin while Jesus would have never prayed in its entirety this same prayer. So I like to think of Matthew chapter 6, 9-13 through 13, as the disciples' prayer. And just like Jesus would not have prayed that prayer regularly, neither would the disciples, including you and I, pray the Lord's Prayer here in John 17. And the reason that we would never pray this prayer is because we don't relate to God from eternity past in the way Jesus did. We relate to him today as father, so that part of it's the same, but we don't relate to God today as as if we had been in existence with him from all eternity past. It would be like reading a poem or saying a prayer that wasn't written from you. The disciples' prayer was given for the disciples to pray, and the Lord's prayer was given for the Lord to pray. And so when you recite a prayer that Jesus prayed, we recite a prayer that he taught us to pray from Matthew 6, not necessarily the prayer that we would recite would be the prayer of John 17. All right, that's just a little technicality. If you don't like it, that's fine. Just kick it to the curb, all right? I'm just pointing that out to you. But I would say this, there are similarities between these two prayers, namely the fact that both prayers address God as father. So Jesus addresses God as father. The disciples' prayer also addresses God as father. That's the one similarity that both prayers definitely have as they start off uh, addressing God as father. What an amazing truth that you get to pray to God every day and address him as father. He has adopted you into his family. He's given you the privileges of sonship. He calls you his child. No matter what your relationship was like with your earthly father, you have the opportunity to have a relationship with a heavenly father who loves you perfectly. You have a father in heaven who wants to talk to you and to hear from you every single day. You remember being a kid? You felt like your dad was just a little too busy to talk to you? I hear that from my kids once in a while, like, Dad, 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 and, you know, and it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, it's like we, we just, you know, you get busy, or maybe you have more than one child that you're tending to, but our Heavenly Father in Heaven is always your audience. He listens intently. He knows your heart. He knows your requests before you even ask them, and we have the privilege of addressing Him as a loving, listening Father. In fact, I think there's two things that are expressed with the word father. One is relationship. This isn't in your notes, but one is relationship. The other one is affection. When I think about father, I think about relationship. That's how we relate to God. He is our father. We have that kind of relationship with him. Nothing can change that. Positionally, if you're in Christ, He is your father. Right, no, nothing can change that. If you're His child today, then you will forever be His child. No sin can separate you. No act can sever that relationship. If you are in Christ today, no failure on your part will ever demote you to something less than a son or a daughter of God. And once God is your father, He's always your father. Amen. Like no matter what happens to one of your kids, they're always your kids, right? You always have your mom, you always have your dad, no matter what. The second thing, in addition to relationship that's expressed by using the word father, I think is the idea of affection. There's something affectionate about using the word father. Yesterday, my seven-year-old daughter and I got to spend a good part of the day together Anna and Nate are away at winter camp. Lisa was gone with the other two, uh, my other two sons, Micaiah and Hudson. So that left me and Zoe together. And so as we were trying to figure out what we're going to do on our day together yesterday, she said something that was really touching and encouraging. She's like, Dad, I can't wait to spend the whole day with you. And we did. We had a good day together. We went out to lunch. I bought her a couple of things. We even went to Starbucks. She's out sleeping right now, but we must have had a really good day yesterday. We had a wonderful time together. And I just think that when she told me, you know, when she said, Dad, I can't wait to spend the whole day with you, I was kind of convicted in my heart because I can't remember the last time I said that to my Heavenly Father. I have access to God the Father every day. But you know what we usually give God? Our leftovers all right, God, I got a minute here. God, I got two minutes right here. Lord, I got a minute here. I don't know that I've ever woken up in the morning and said, Heavenly Father, I can't wait to spend all day with you. What a beautiful affection that the word Father ought to draw us into, that you are not only a child positionally, But you're a child affectionately, that you have that opportunity to have that beautiful love relationship with your heavenly Father. And we see a picture of this in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11, when Jesus says, you remember this, he says, Which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ass were a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask of him? You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, hey Adam, you might have done a good job doing some nice things with your girl yesterday, but if you're going to do that and you're evil because you're not you know, truly divine like God the Father is, how much more is he going to do that for us? a good and loving father who affectionately wants to lavish his blessings, his relationship, his spiritual strength and vigor to his children. God would never give us a stone instead of bread or a serpent instead of fish. We love God because not only do we have a relationship with him, we have an affectionate Relationship with him that cannot be denied, a bond that could never be broken, a love relationship sealed, a love relationship that is sealed with Christ's blood. He calls us friends, we call him Father. He's your father today. I hope you're encouraged by that. Not only does Jesus address God as father, but also, notice, B says, acknowledging the hour has come. Acknowledging the hour has come. Right there in the middle of verse 1, after he lifts his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Now, your next blank says there was a time when his hour had not yet come. There was a time when his hour had not yet come. All through the Gospel of John, we've been preparing for this moment. Several times before this, we are told specifically that Jesus' time had not come. In John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to Mary, My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said to his disciples, My time has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus said, For my time has not yet come fully come. John chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury, he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The gospel of John, like all the gospels, is a narrative account. It it, it kind of overviews for us throughout its, its, its writing, the creation to the fall, the exodus to the conquering and dividing of the promised land from the exile to to the, the building of the temple from the incarnation is where the gospels really zero in from the, from the incarnation of Christ to this very moment. This very moment is what all of history has been waiting for. This very moment would change everything. This would be the moment of redemption. And the hard part sometimes is waiting for those big moments. You know, They're kind of like anticipating something's about to happen and Jesus is like, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And I'm saying that part of the hardest thing in life, I think, is waiting for that right timing when God is going to do whatever it is that God's going to do. And the hard part sometimes is waiting again for those moments to come. We spend most of our lives living the spans of time between major events. Most of our lives are not monumental events, but it's the moments that we spend in between those monumental events. You only graduate from high school once. You only get married ideally once. You know, that, that there's only a moment in time when you hear those words, you know, it's a boy, it's a girl at the birth of your child. Those are special moments that happen. But what I'm saying is that most of life is lived in between those monumental announcements. It's those moments that you live day in and day out that help prepare you for that big moment. It's how you live those in-between moments that prepare you for the moment when your whole life changes. And those in-between moments are not inconsequential. They are necessary for life to unfold exactly the way God planned it to be. How are you living out those kinds of moments? I think Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 remind us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but is wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Simply just saying, every moment counts. Even when Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, he's not saying this is insignificant. All, all I'm trying to say is that when our, when our time is not come, and when it's game time, either way, every moment is significant to God, and we've got to get ready for it. And now we're getting ready for what Jesus is going to be sharing with us in this prayer and throughout the rest of the Gospel of John that his time has come. In fact, that's your next blank, number two. This hour, this is the hour that his time has come. There was a moment when it had not come, but now his hour has come. It's here. Just before the Upper Room Discourse, look at John 12:23. John 12, 23 is when Jesus announces it. So remember, this is in the Passion Week. This is now probably on the Thursday, moving in towards even uh, Friday, depending on a couple different views of how you track that week. But Jesus says this, John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then leading into the Last Supper, we read in John 13, verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. All we're saying is this Jesus' time has now come. And you know what? God's timing is always perfect, He's not too early. And he never arrives too late. In the span of human history, this was the perfect time for God to send his son and for him to come into this world. And this was exactly the right time for him to now come to his death. According to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel... This was the exact right time when Jesus would come to the point of the end of his life. Not only did he come to the right timing at the end of his life, but he came to the right place. According to Zechariah chapter 12, he would offer up his life in Jerusalem. So Jesus came to accomplish what God had called him to do. And now we're getting down to the nitty gritty of his mission. It's game time and Jesus is ready. Now listen to me, when we think a little bit about just Jesus talking about my time has not yet come, and now my time has come, and the time that he's talking about is the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection. In many ways, this time that has now come is a trial. In many ways, for Jesus, it's a tough last night. I mean, he's going to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this timing that is coming doesn't necessarily mean that it's all a bed of roses, This is coming at a time when it's very difficult. Jesus is about to face the greatest trial of his life, but he knows this is the time. Have you ever felt like when you were in a trial, somehow it just didn't come at the right time? You know, something just happens in your life and you're like, oh, not this week, not today. And yet in God's timing, whenever he brings that trial, that difficulty in your life, it's actually the perfect timing. There's no such thing as a trial that you experience happened in the wrong time. God decrees every single thing that happens in your life every day. He's been waiting for just that moment to introduce just that trial. Because in that very moment, your time has also come not only to face the trial, but to have the Spirit of God give you the ability to triumph. In the midst of that trial. And really, that's exactly what we see here going on, that in this trial, Jesus is going to show us his major triumph over the cross. And yet, that's just what happens, right? We never seem to think that trials come at a good time. I don't know about you guys, but there's something about our family. Whenever I travel, something always happens to Lisa or the kids when I seem to be out of town. I mean, I've been out of town where things have happened that have just been crazy, like we've had a snake in our pool, or I've been out of, town, uh, out of town and the power goes out, everything gets kind of wonky in the house, or the engine light comes on in one of our vehicles, or I've had a kid go to the ER while I'm out of town on a camping trip. You know, I get a call, where have you been? You know, we're taking this kid to the ER. Uh, just this last week I was out of town and uh, the dishwasher broke, right? Trials never seem to come at the right time. Well, just remember this. If the cross came at the right time, so does your trial. Whatever's happening in your life is the exact time that God's bringing it about. In fact, that's what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed." Don't be surprised. Trials are coming. It's not strange. It's normal. Life is full of trials. But with every trial comes an opportunity. On the other side of the valley is the mountain. On the other side of the night is the sunrise. What doesn't kill you, as they say, will make you stronger. Christ suffered, so will you. But we can also rejoice and be glad because through this trial, God's glory is revealed and so as jesus comes to the end of his life and it is now time for him to fully live up to what he has been called to do look at what the end of this verse is about let's move now to see in your outline asking to be glorified in order to glorify the father now we're getting down to the very uh ending of this first verse and notice how profound it is what jesus has already said father we see again relationship and affection. He's already said the time has come, and we know what Jesus means by that: the cross and the resurrection. And then here's his specific prayer the end of verse one: glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Oftentimes the question comes up: is it all right for us to pray for ourselves? Is it okay for me to pray for myself? I can assuredly answer that question: that the answer is yes. You should pray for yourself. I just told you the outline of this prayer is that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. And then in 20 through 26, he prays for the church. Jesus does pray for himself. It is a good thing for you to pray for yourself. In fact, we see that again in verse 5 when he says, and Father, glorify me in your own presence that uh, that with the glory I had with you before the world existed. But that glorify me is a prayer for himself. Notice, however, that both in verse 1 and verse 5, when he says, glorify me, it's not a selfish prayer. This is not a self-focused prayer. This is a prayer that is, that is not focused on yourself at the absence of the glory of God, but rather it is completely focused on God's glory. No, no Jesus is not um, praying that he would be glorified separate from God, in in, in uh, juxtaposition to who God is, but rather that as he's glorified, that that very glorification of himself that he's praying for would glorify the Father. In fact, we could say it this way. Number one, how will the Father glorify the Son? Jesus is asking for it. We're asking, how is the Father gonna do it? Because Jesus asked again, glorify me. So how will the Father glorify the Son? Well, let's just first say the glory of God it's one of the overarching themes of the Bible. God was glorified in his creation. God was glorified in his people when they walked in obedience. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is glorified in all things. Romans 11:36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So if the whole theme is about the glory of God, and if Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48 specifically says that God will be glorified and not give his glory to another, how is it that Jesus can ask to be glorified? Well, bottom line, Jesus is not trying to take glory away from the Father. Jesus is asking to be glorified so that he can glorify the Father. Plus, Jesus is God. He's of the same essence and the same substance as God. Jesus must be glorified. And so one of the main ways that God glorifies the son is by keeping every promise that he has ever made to the son. Listen to some of these promises from the Psalms. So I'm saying one of the ways that God does glorify Jesus is that he keeps his promises that he's made to him. And we see this in Psalm 2 verses 7 and following. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so there in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, God is speaking of an eternal decree. And here in Psalm 2, according to God's previously issued ordinance, Yahweh, the Father, says to Jesus, his son, you are my son. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the Father speaks to his son, the Davidic king. This is possibly the clearest place in the Old Testament where we see the relationship of the Trinity, a relationship decreed in eternity past, which is demonstrated in the incarnation. This passage in Psalm 2 expresses the privilege of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so that's a beautiful promise that is fulfilled at the incarnation. So the way that the Father glorifies the Son is not only having him be incarnated, but having him have a kingdom that will never end. And we see again in Psalm 72, 17, another way that the father glorified the son was by keeping this promise. Psalm 72, 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the son may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And so another way that the father glorified the son is, if he's going to have a kingdom that endures forever, we know he doesn't stay dead in the grave. Not only is he going to be uh, incarnated, but he's going to be raised from the dead. His fame will continue as long as the sun. Did you know that Jesus is the most famous person who ever lived? There's nobody more famous than him. There's nobody, no human being, because he was fully God and fully man, who's been more eternal than him. His kingdom knows no end. And so God is keeping these promises that he's been making to the son in Psalm 2, Psalm 72, and now look at Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, by the way, Psalm 110, verse one, most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's another promise. The Lord said to my Lord. That first Lord is all caps to reference us to the idea of the Hebrew word Yahweh. The second Lord is the word Adonai, which is a reference to Jesus. And so when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, David is saying, Yahweh said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That happens through the cross. All the enemies come after Jesus. He is crucified, part of God's plan. He's then raised from the dead. He then ascends to heaven in the throne room of God. And God says, All of your enemies, I'm now making a footstool under your feet because you have conquered them all. And so, as Jesus is praying, God, glorify me, I think that part of what he's thinking is all the promises that what God has made to him throughout the Old Testament are now about to become true. And so that's just one way of the the many ways that God glorifies the Son when when Jesus says, glorify me. And then we see, how does the prayer end? Verse 1, it says, that the Son may glorify you. So the Greek scholars call this a henna clause. Do this for me so that, in result, I might do this for you. And so here's the idea. How will the Son glorify the Father? How exactly does the Son glorify the Father, you ask? Well, Jesus glorifies the Father by his perfect obedience. The Father is glorified by Jesus' sacrifice. The Father is glorified by Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection and the ascension, because all of this shows that the plan of the Father was perfect, that the power of the Father was unstoppable that the provision of the Father was sufficient, that the purpose of the Father was completed. And all this points to how when the Son is glorified, the Father is also glorified. That's what's happening. You know, and if you, I, I told you don't pray John 17, pray Matthew 6. But if you were to pray John 17, you could say something like, God, be glorified in me so that I might glorify you. God, shine your light on me so that I might shine whatever light and reflect that on your glory. Bless me so that I can be a blessing. And the best way that you can be a blessing, I think, is by following here in the footsteps of Jesus, that you would obey every single thing that God has called you to do, that you would walk in humble obedience to him so that as God is pouring out his blessings on you, you're pointing it all back to the Father. When Jesus again says, glorify me, think of him praying crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Let me return to possess the glory that I had with God before uh, the, the world was even created. This is how God is glorified in the Son. God has an obedient, loyal, faithful Son in Jesus. And Jesus glorifies his Father by fulfilling the mission for which the Father sent him. And so we need to also, one last takeaway, we need to focus our prayers in the glory of God. I mean, Jesus, as soon as he starts this prayer, he's like, God, I just want you to be glorified. I wonder how many of our prayers have that similar theme to it. You know, usually we begin to get on our list of things that we really want and maybe really need, but does it always encompass the glory of God? Well, this is just the first little point of our prayer. Next week, we're going to look at the promise of Jesus's prayer, and then we're going to look, number three, at the point of Jesus's prayer. It was G. Campbell Morgan who said about John 17, the deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men but the glory of God, and then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. One of the things that we'll be looking at in John 17 is that this prayer, verse 1, he's going to be praying, God, I just want you to be glorified. Now, he will pray for the church. He will pray for his disciples, but I'm saying to you that this prayer first, and most, Jesus' is most passionate about his Father being glorified even more than your salvation, which is a humbling thought because we would think, according to all the Christian radio songs, that God cares about you more than he cares about his own glory. But I'm here to tell you today that John 17 doesn't teach us that. John 17 tells us that Jesus cares most about the glory of his Father. Now, here's the good news. The glory of the Father and your salvation are not opposed to each other. So as he's praying for his Father to be glorified, he also prays that you would come into salvation and walk in obedience to the Word of God. I can't wait to unpack that kind of stuff with you as we continue throughout this prayer together. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, it's time for you to address God as Father. No longer the big guy upstairs, no longer a distant entity, no longer a higher being. I'm calling you today, if you're here in this service and you've never repented of your sins and you've never been comfortable really addressing God as Father, it could be because you're not a child of God. On this day, if you would turn from your sin and confess it and repent of it and ask God to save you based on the beautiful gift of His Son, You could be saved today. Just call out to him. Tell him you're a big fat sinner. Tell him you need salvation through Christ. Ask him to come into your life and to change you. You could be born again this day, and for the rest of your life, you could reach out to him as your father. If you're here today and you are a Christian, do you value calling him father? Do you value what Jesus has been pointing us to even in this first verse? God, just be glorified in me so that I can glorify you. Would you even say something like this week, Father, I can't wait to spend my quiet time with you. I can't wait to spend these 5, 10, 20 minutes. I mean, we're with him all day. He's with us all day. There's omnipresence. We get that. But the idea is like, God, I just can't wait to spend more time with you. John 17, I'm telling you. It's an incredible prayer. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples. And Jesus prays for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just begin today, Psalm, I mean, uh, John 17. We're just so thankful, God, to, to be able to just bite off a little introduction to this incredible 26-verse prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we look at the eternality of this prayer, and as we look at the transcendence of this prayer, and as we look and think about the glory of Christ that existed from eternity past to eternity future, I just pray we would be amazed. And I pray that on this day, God, as we've just had a little time in John 17, that you would already begin just to change the way we think about prayer, change the way we think about how we relate to you as our Father. God, we pray that we would learn much from Jesus' prayer. This Lord's prayer would be so powerful, so encouraging, so filled with deep doctrinal truth that it would just cause us to worship you. And to have thankful hearts that today we can call out to you as our Father. It's through Christ and by the Spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.